The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinger, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? (laughs) I'm really tired and hungover. (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs) Nice, nice. Love it. So for all the listeners out there, Bethany and I went to the Golden Bee last night off of Old Street, downtown London, to go to the COO Roundtable event. And we had a couple drinks last night, I think. I ended up staying a little bit later than planned. Yes. <laughs> but otherwise, I'm yes, being brilliant. Yeah. So, later. Brandon was a good boy. I left at 9 p.m., and Bethany was the last woman standing at 11 p.m., I think, something like that. Yeah, something like that. I was in bed before one. So, I think that's, you know, a win. Any stories of note coming out of the Golden Bee last night uh, that are worthwhile for our listeners? I think it's more of us going into the Golden Bee. Because apparently it's a club that's been around in London for years, but I'm not cool enough. I don't hang out in Shoreditch enough anymore to have any idea. So I was walking by trying to find it. And then there was this big doorman and is this little hole in the wall. And I was like, this isn't really where corporate networking drinks happen. Like, is, is this the right place? And <laughs> I was like, I'm here for the CEO roundtable. <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And kind of half rolls his eyes. He's like, I have to look in your bag. I was like, what are you looking in my bag for? And he just looked at me and opened up my bag. And he's like, oh, a laptop and headphones. Ooh, controversial. To me, it was kind of bizarre, actually, because like the two guys at the front door, they had the padded vest, the, the bulletproof vest, or I don't know what was going on. It reminded me, to be honest, of when I was backpacking in Guatemala, going to nightclubs there, where he had like military individuals standing outside the nightclubs with machine guns, basically. Is this Guatemala or is this the, the Golden Bee in Shoreditch? <laughs> And then we got VIP bracelets. And I was just like, wow, this is taking me back a really long time. And then we got up and it was like, oh, and, and so in the little VIP area, I'd say average age was 45. And then outside the VIP area, average age was 25. It just did nothing to make me feel young and cool in any way whatsoever. <laughs> yes, we're in our hip CO circle. That's where we're at in our lot in life these days. So we've got a two-part leadership series, and the topic today is high performance within that team. We have a special guest in Becca Sweetman, who's coming out shortly. But before we get to that, Bethany, I just wanted to quickly talk about when you think about high performance or a high performance leadership team and some of the key learnings you've had throughout your career, I just wonder if you can throw out a couple of those nuggets, what you've learned in terms of really how to create and foster that high performance leadership team. What's interesting is like just as you mentioned it, I all of a sudden thought. So it's really hard to reach a high-performance leadership team, but also it's transient. Like I think I've had moments of the team working just amazingly well together, and then other times where it's been mediocre and times that it's been really bad. And so I think maybe the first thing to recognize is you don't just achieve it and then it's there forever. Like Relationships change, people and the makeup of the team changes, and what the team's working on also changes, which makes it like become an easier team to gel or a harder team to gel. 
for me, I think the teams that I've worked on that have been the most high performance, most fun to be on and in flow has all been around fundraisers rather than like day-to-day mundaneness. <laughs> yeah, you're right. When there's a bit of BAU, it feels less harmonious sometimes as opposed to a special event that somehow pulls the team together or makes them feel like they're on a mission. And a fundraiser is always a mission for the organization that people really want to be a part of and contribute to. And I think for myself in that respect, I used to do this historically. I think now, in retrospect, it's probably not the best idea, but we used to pull together six months, every six months, do what we called a strategy day within the organization. And it was an escapade to do it because we'd have to pull the leadership team together, galvanize around a program that made sense, and then execute it You know, as kind of a live event for the team to work through over the course of several days. And these events that we pulled off historically at some point, they got almost excessive. We would do like four days of an offsite. <laughs> it became like creating a conference event or something like that. And it was good for the team in the sense of really pulling us together. But equally, I think it really didn't produce the results that we're looking for in terms of the organization. But to your point, I think special events are really headlines for the company where the team is being pulled together on a mission. I think those are the ones where that high performance you know, can really happen. Yeah. And so I guess the question is, how do you create that high performance during BAU times. And for me, I've seen it most at like the honeymoon period where maybe you have a newly formed team and everybody's excited about their jobs. There's a lot of new energy. And again, there's a lot of moving in the same direction. It's like when you enter into the trough of disillusionment and you're in your 57th weekly meeting together, that that high performance seems to go away. I've never really thought about this before, but I wonder, like, maybe we're relying on external stimulation for the team. And the question is how to create it internally. Does that make sense? I think in that respect, at the end of the leadership team meetings, really being in a position where you can reel back to the team, what have we just talked about? What have we just decided? What are we actually going to do? How are we going to communicate it? The simple action of doing this at the end of the session, it makes it feel, not just feel, but I think in a real tangible way, it drives the next steps. And if you don't do that or you don't wrap it up in that way, you can feel kind of aimless or like an aimless ship in some respects. And I think that key aspect of the facilitator, whoever it is, performing that and really laying that groundwork week to week, that's where really can kind of drive motion, I would say, in terms of actions coming out out of that leadership team meeting that actually make a difference. Yeah, I agree. But it's one of those disciplines that you need to build into a habit because it can, particularly in the beginning, you're like, okay, so we're going to save the last five minutes, the last 10 minutes for wrap up. And everybody goes, okay, fine. And then the first time you put it in place, you completely overrun and don't manage even five minutes of wrap up. Then you're like, okay, for sure, we're going to do it this time. Absolutely. At 10 minutes, we're going to wrap up. And then you start with, Item number one. So we're all agreed that lunches are going to be ordered fortnightly on a Friday. And everybody's like, no, I don't agree with that. And it just opens up the conversation all over again. <laughs> you're like, oh, okay. And it starts to surface what actually is working and what isn't. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what it does, right? Did we actually agree on anything, right? And if you haven't, it should become clear at that point, which is fabulous. <laughs> makes me think about another aspect of these meetings, which I think is also critical, which is some individuals that will voice their opinions very robustly and you have others that won't. 
and the criticality in this, this respect to ensure that there's actually alignment across the entire team is for that facilitator to ensure they're mining for the disagreements, they're mining for the discrepancies, because if they don't, then the result is what you just said, which is you get to the end of the meeting and you're like, we didn't agree anything. <laughs> and that's not the position that you want to be in. The job of being a facilitator is a critical one and taking it seriously is a critical one and thinking through these different pieces can make all the difference to a successful leadership team on a weekly cadence or not. Well, that's really interesting. So for me, I have found facilitating meetings in the land or time of Zoom way easier because I just do a lot of what I see are people's expressions. And so it won't be what they're saying, but you can see one person says something and another person like grimaces for a microsecond or rolls their eyes or something. And in Zoom, when you have everybody's faces up together, you can really tell what's going on. Whereas I find actually in the room as a facilitator, much harder because I'm looking at the person next to me. Has their, you know, who I can only half see, has their facial changed? Has somebody across the room? And I don't think I actually pick up as many of the non-spoken disagreements in the room than I do on Zoom. Is there anything else that you can think about just in terms of key things that have made a difference to that team? I'm a big lover of trust, a big lover of vulnerability. Like I think I am philosophically and it seems to work, but I also think I just like my default is to overshare and make deep connections. And I want everybody else to do the same. And so I guess for me, the high performance teams that I've most enjoyed working with are the ones where there are occasional tears. And I know about their personal lives and their fears and their aspirations. And I just love the drama. I love the humanness of being together. I'm not a let's all leave our problems at home and just work on the issue and be super clinical about things. So that's like my personal preference for the kind of high performance team I like working in. That's a fascinating point because when you think about when you're hiring for the leadership team, what you just spoke about quality-wise, it actually would be an important criteria for the hiring process, to be honest, because you're going to need people that are wanting to have that kind of conversation, I think, because I think you know you definitely come across people for sure that don't want to do that, to your point. <laughs> So it seems like from a hiring characteristic point of view, it seems like a, a rather important one. This is why values matter so much, figuring out what your actual own personal values are and uncovering it with others because all cultures are fine. It's just to make sure everybody in that culture is on board with it. I'm just curious, what's your ideal? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I, I have like a real duality in desire. I'm very much happy to leave the personal aside entirely and focus on the business part of it and develop relationships around that piece. And I think it's entirely possible to develop really trustworthy relationships based on business in the context of business. Equally, I've seen the other side of a work really quite well as well, which is when the personal does come into it in a substantial way, that can be quite a powerful galvanizer of trust building within the leadership team as well. And I'm very happy to do both. And just as a small digression, as maybe a, a quick example here of what you're talking about, I had taken the management team, not the leadership team, but the management team to do a training session. And the training session was the Meisner technique for business purposes, which is really to open people up to each other. And the result of that training session was a disaster because some people felt that the whole training session, the premise of it 
it was way too personal and they felt really awkward and they felt uncomfortable and they voiced that opinion, which is fair and totally fine. And I think what I didn't recognize when I put them into the training session was that that might be the reaction of individuals. And it definitely was. I love it. <laughs> and there was other participants that also really appreciated it as well, but there's others that clearly did not. So to your point, from a value standpoint and hiring people into the leadership team that are open to that or not, and knowing that at the outset is actually quite important in terms of that value set. So I, I guess my answer back to you, I guess, is I'm happy to do both. I can do both. I guess but like I can do both as well, but I much prefer one. And it like kind of gets me excited. Right. And the other one, I'm like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. In the business work context, I'm perfectly happy with both. I don't think I have a real preference to I think it's on my I think it's low on my priority list of things that are important to me. It just kind of interesting point is when Brandon and I saw each other last night, we realized it was the first time we've seen each other in real life since starting the podcast. It's an interesting relationship for us because we've been not colleagues, but like work acquaintances for many years. And now suddenly we spend more time with each other on Zoom than we probably do with our families almost. And yet we're learning about each other and getting to know each other with all of you. So I really like asking these questions because I, I don't know the answers. And it's just interesting to get to know you through the podcast. Yeah, actually, that's a good shout because actually what makes the podcast partially fun, and hopefully for the listeners as well, which is we're talking to interesting people about interesting topics, but also our journey of getting to know each other is captured on podcast. I'll stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So why don't we move on to our conversation with Becca Sweetman, and this is all about leadership teams, the CEO role, and high performance. So let's do that. Hi, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome Becca Sweetman to the podcast today. Welcome, Becca. Hi. Great to be here. So when you think about high-performing teams and what you need to do to achieve that, in particular for a leadership team, can you walk us through a bit of your perspective on that in terms of how you do that, what works and what doesn't work, high-performing teams, how do you make it happen? Sure. So when I think about a high-performing team, in its really simplest form, I'm talking about one where the collective performance of the team is greater than the sum of its parts. And what I like to do with team coaching is to use one of the models that's out there. The one that, that I tend to use is Peril. I find it really simple for myself, but also for a team to pick up. A COO could pick it up and have a look at it. And what you have is six different lenses through which to view the performance of the team. And if I were to work with the team, Typically, what you do in the initial stage is to conduct a diagnostic. So for those people who understand the world of one-to-one of -one coaching, you would have an initial conversation, coach and coachee, to explore what they want to get out of coaching. And it's very similar in the world of team coaching. The only thing is you've got that greater complexity of a whole team. So a diagnostic would typically include observing a team meeting, having one-to-one -one interviews, and also perhaps conducting a diagnostic survey. And these, these lenses that I was referring to within the peril model, it's the letters in peril, six lenses. The first is P, and it's purpose. That's what's the purpose of the team, but also what I find really interesting, and we talked about earlier, is what is the purpose of each individual on the team? And the transition I find, particularly at an earlier stage, so say kind of series A, as that team is perhaps forming, 
is that individuals are going from wearing purely their functional hat to learning how to wear a company hat, particularly if they're first time on a leadership team. So that can be a starting point of an interesting conversation. I know there's a lot of letters involved here. I just want to maybe ask you two specific questions before we move on to the next letter. But the diagnostic survey, what is that in the sense of the diagnostic part of it? Because I can imagine going into a leadership team meeting to observe, for sure, you're going to find out a lot of nuggets in that case. This diagnostic survey, what what is that in reference to? So the survey I would use would actually be against each of the lenses through peril. So some of the questions would relate to purpose, some to external systems and processes, and some to the others that we can come on to if we want to later on. And it's all about gathering data so that then you can bring the team together and say, oh, look, this as a team is where you've said you're strongest and where you've said you're weakest. The kind of end of the diagnostic process is helping the team to have a conversation about the areas they might want to work on. And like with an individual's development, it might be strengthening a strength or it might be working on an area that's a weakness. I don't really like frameworks very much. I tend to find them a little bit restrictive and I just like to have some freedom. I'm a freedom contrarian. Anybody asks me a question, I'll just be and it's like A or B and I'm like, no, I think I'll go for C or I'll go for a little bit of A and a little bit of B. Thanks. When I think about, and this is probably giving away way too much insight into my own psyche and like all of my weaknesses. When I think about teams that I've been in and when I cause problems in the team or there could be tensions in the team, the thing that it tends to be is around, I don't suffer fools easily. And then once I've put you in the fool bucket, and that's really harsh, first of all, you'll know that I've put you in that bucket. And secondly, it's nearly impossible to get you out of that bucket. And obviously nobody wants to be considered. Wow. I don't even put in that bucket. Jeez. <laughs> hey, I'm now wondering where I'm sitting in this in this bucket. Where does that fit in peril? So where do you get to those individual issues? Because quite frankly, they might very well know what their purpose is. I might know what my purpose is, but I just don't think they're doing a particularly good job in their area. Sure. I mean, the, the next bit would be relationships. That R is relationships, and that's relationships one-to-one as well as the collective relationship of the team. A huge thing that can come up in that is psychological safety and individuals feeling safe to share their opinions. And clearly, if one person has decided that somebody else is a fool, then there might be a bit of a lack of psychological safety in that team. Different things you can do there. Well, that's my question. So I'm definitely, I'm turning this into possibly a coaching session here, is I know I do it. I know it's unfair. I am totally aware of it being a bad behavior that is not helpful for the team. And yet I really struggle to get past it. I hope to God I'm not the only one that you've ever dealt with in this kind of dynamic. And I'm kind of thinking maybe some of our listeners might have this as well. How do you work through it? Either having been put in the box of not trusted to do your job or the person who can't help but make it clear how they feel about others. I think it is, as you say, it is something that comes up the whole time. And perhaps particularly in a startup environment where things are moving so quickly and teams aren't actually necessarily together for that long compared to what you might find in a larger, more stable corporate environment. So getting a group to gel and work together quickly is even more important. And it would depend on the situation. And I'd want to understand more about exactly the situation. But one of the first things that's coming to my mind is some form of psychometric or behavioral analysis. So the one I started using is DISC, and it looks at people's behavioral preferences. 
And for me, tools just open up the opportunity to have a conversation. And you put the data there and somebody can say, look, I totally disagree with it. But even in disagreeing with it, you're having a conversation and you can start to say, oh, actually, my preference is for us to have more discussion in meetings and to be more collaborative and really support each other. Oh, wait a moment. My preference is to be more challenging. And you start to just surface where people's natural preferences are, what their typical way of working is, or what their experience has been in the past. Because actually, if somebody's been in a company where the ways of working of the team is totally different to the company they've stepped into, it can be very hard to adjust without actually having a conversation about it. Your final point is why I don't really like psychometric testing, because how you interact in one team in one situation can be vastly different to how you interact with another team in another situation and those dynamics. And so I feel like if you identify yourself as a, I'm a red or I do this, that might be somewhat of your preference, but there's way more at play in the dynamics and what you're bringing to the team than what you see in just one test. Totally. Also, if your natural tendency is very skewed in in one direction. So I know that particularly when I'm in a company as COO, one of my tendencies and also one of my skills is to spot the issues. Like, oh, that's not going to work because of this. That's not going to work because of that. And I will jump in very quickly and people can find that not necessarily constructive. And it can lead to a situation where people are fearful to share things because they're worried that I might jump in and point out all the errors. However, actually, as a coach, I use that skill set to my advantage because I can spot the things that might be an issue, but I then frame it as a question to allow the team to consider different options and to help the team to have a conversation. And I now know that if actually I went back in as a COO into a company, yes, that skill set would still be there, that behavioral tendency would still be there, but I know how to manage it to make it constructive and productive for the whole team. And so perhaps there's a, a parallel there for you as well. Maybe you're spotting the fools. As- <laughs> I don't know if we're comfortable using that word over and over again, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you're spotting the individuals that perhaps haven't yet gained your respect and actually question what is it that's putting them in that bucket? What is it that if you were to step into their shoes you might observe that you weren't aware of when you're standing in your shoes. And interestingly, I am a trust loss, not a trust gained person. So they start with my trust and lose it rather than having yet earned it yet, just from what you've said. And just to be clear, like I understand how it's helpful to have conversation starters. My concern is when it becomes like black and white, you're like, I am this forever. And this is how I have to act because, and people start to draw these really hard lines where in reality, very little in the world is black and white. Oh, I definitely in that bucket with you. Any assessment like DISC or using something like Peril, it's all about creating a conversation. There is no like, this is the bucket you sit in and this is the bucket you're stuck in because we're human beings. We can't just put ourselves into (laughs) buckets. And if a company, if a team chooses to use these tools, it's one of the first things I will always say, this is about discussion, not diagnosis. And it is 
crucial that people understand that. Otherwise, you can end up with a really negative situation where it's like, oh, you're a D and therefore, which just isn't healthy. Maybe this is another R. I think my problem with peril is that everything is an R in my world, but or like it all, it all balances down to relationship in the end. I'm thinking of a scenario where team coaching might be really helpful. Oftentimes, a COO will be brought in as the first professional exec, let's call it. So you'll have a bunch of founders, you'll have some step-up candidates who are running some of the functions. Everybody realizes they need to know more. You bring in a COO who's done it and seen it before. And then you're in a management team or a leadership team with very different levels of experience. And it can be quite lonely and a little bit strange for the COO. When you find yourself in that position and you've newly joined a team, what should you do? I've actually just been having a conversation with a COO recently who similarly has just joined a team. It's a relatively young company. There are a couple of founders. There are a couple of other experienced leaders. And there are people who haven't been in leadership roles before. And actually, the first question on their mind is, you know, are we forming a leadership team? This is kind of a series A company. And yes, those heads of function exist and have been coming together and having conversations. But at the moment, there actually isn't a leadership team where to go back to what we were saying earlier, you know, the hat that those people wear when they're in those leadership team meetings is the company hat and that everyone's expected to be able to think cross-functionally. And so that's perhaps the first thing for a COO to consider is, is this as an established team? And if it is an established team, then, you know, many times when you're joining a company, you're joining, you're observing, you're understanding how things are working today. And then perhaps looking for the opportunities for how you might be able to improve things and what your role is in that team going forwards. But if actually that team hasn't been formed, then there's a great conversation to have initially with the CEO or the founders, if there are multiple founders, of you know, how do they want leadership in the company to work? Who should be on that team? I've done two team coaching engagements in the last couple of years where the, the first question actually was, who's on the team? And the first you know, few weeks of conversation with the CEO back and forth and actually part of the kind of diagnostic process was working out who should the members of the team be and then how does that team come together and form for the first time and what's the message that goes to the rest of the company and that's both communicating to the rest of the company what the role of the team is but also making sure that those individuals on the team the first time leaders the experienced leaders all have a shared understanding what that team is coming together for its purpose and how they should work together so their their systems and processes as a team. And they'll just be starting to form their relationships as a team. That makes sense. And then this is a natural follow-on question, I think, to what you just said. and also harkens back to what you said previously around trying to build a cohesive leadership team that gels as fast as possible, in particular in a Series A company where you have limited time to produce results. So do you have any kind of practical tips or things that the listeners could think about in terms of really making that happen fast? I think Series A is often that transition to Series A, Series B is when that team's coming together for the first time and you just don't have long. The first thing in my mind is creating a space to have a conversation about the team and how it works together that is separate from the day-to-day, week-to-week, actually getting stuff done in the company. And that could be hard to carve out, but it could even just be an hour to begin with. Just start that conversation, whether it's Part of the normal week to week, or it's at an offsite. An offsite can be a great place to do this because everyone t- feels as though they're taking that little bit of a step back. 
And then the second thing comes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of to use a tool or not use a tool. If we've got a really experienced COO in there who understands what a high-performing team looks like, then they may not need to use a tool, but they may benefit from using a tool if others in the team have less experience and actually bringing in some form of tool to help people understand what a high-performing team looks like and creating that space for conversation may not necessarily be needed by the COO, but may be needed by those people who are on the team for the first time. So firstly, create the space. Secondly, use some sort of framework to help people understand what a high-performing team is and get a shared understanding of where they're doing well and where they're struggling. And then you can put a plan in place for, okay, actually, look, if we're struggling in terms of the running of our meetings, what format do we want for our leadership team meeting? How do we redesign that? Or how do we redesign our communications outside of the meeting or redesign our decision-making process? And then you can try that and come back together in a month, in a couple of months' time and say, oh, how's the team working now? So this is, I don't know, maybe something ironic, but Lencioni as that tool, it is just so popular and kind of like the seminal book on functional and dysfunctional teams and also manga, which I always love. What's your opinion of Lencioni? Is it a tool worth using? When it comes to what tools, at this point, the first and most important part for me is a team creating that space to have a conversation. And then the next bit is actually, if a COO has experience in Lencioni and that's the only tool they have experience in, then that is probably a useful place for them to start because it's something they know and understand. I'd say Lencioni as a tool is different to Peril, which I was explaining, because a little bit of a narrower focus. So it is much more focused on that relationships piece. It's also slightly more linear in its approach. So the idea is that you, you know, start from the bottom of the pyramid. And for those who aren't aware of it, you know, you've got trust, then conflict, commitment, accountability, and then results are the different stages of Lencioni's pyramid. So it's just different. It's a bit more on relationships. It's more linear. Whereas one of the things I like about Peril is that it has six different lenses that gives you a much more broader perspective on the performance of a team. But also it's a much looser tool in that there isn't a prescriptive place to start and an order to go in, which for somebody who has less experience, they may find harder. But actually for someone who prefers a much looser tool, they may also prefer to have something that isn't quite so prescriptive in terms of how to use it and how it works and where you need to start. And yeah, I mean, in my experience, trust isn't necessarily the first thing a team needs to work on. But having said that, and as you say, Lencioni has been very successful and many teams have used it effectively. So it will be the right tool for some teams in some instances. Peril will be the right tool for some teams in some instances. And ultimately, it probably comes down to the COO who's leading that or the team coach who comes in to help the team identify the right tool for them. And that's interesting. Like, I think a lot of it is probably your level of need for drama and connection and intensity. As you can probably tell, I'm all about relationships, all about diving in, putting everything on the table, super deep relationships, loads of trust. 
and like a certain level of intensity in my relationships. And I'm also American. Whereas like, I think peril gives you those abilities to be a bit more anodyne. Like, oh, let's talk about our relationship with the external people and process. Like, it's just not as emotive. It's not as scary. It's a way to start to build trust and talk about safe things first before you like dive straight into the meat. And so it might be in some ways actually a more effective tool for building trust because you start in the shallow end and work your way through. I know Lencioni's model. I haven't trained in it. But from speaking to a number of other team coaches, people have shared that sometimes starting with trust that requires you to really dive into the deep end, the approach is typically about being vulnerable with each other and encouraging that vulnerability may not be appropriate for some teams. And therefore, Lencioni may not be the right tool. Coming back to peril, though, if it is relationships that you identify as the thing you need to work on, and as you dive into that area, it may be that you say, you know what? Let's use Lencioni's model, having identified that is the area we want to work on. Or there are many other different tools. We talked about psychometrics earlier that you could use within that area. But it might also be that you say, you know what? Our relationships are okay, but oh, we've got amazing relationships. We've got, we have great conversations. We trust each other. But when we come together and we've only got an hour meeting to get stuff done, we end up having discussions that go all over the place and we could be there for three hours and we're just not being effective in our team meeting. And it's much more about, look, what are our internal systems and processes? How do we want to design our meetings, our communication structure? Big picture, is it things like OKRs, smaller picture? What is the structure, the agenda of a team meeting that is the place that a team chooses to start and thinks that they can get the most incremental gain from in that moment and in a startup? Finding that one thing that is going to help move the needle is so important because you haven't got the time to spend months and months working on everything. That seems like a very an astute observation, I think. So I know that we don't have a tremendous amount of time left, but when we think about peril, we've talked about P, we've talked about R, and if uh, Vanna had to turn over another letter of interest right now, which letter should we turn over, Becca? We've actually touched on, on most. So it goes purpose, external systems and processes, relationships. We've kind of touched on all those. Internal systems and processes. So perhaps it's all about L. There's actually two L's at the end of peril. It's one about learning and one about leadership. What is most of interest to you guys? Leadership. What does it mean? Leadership. <laughs> That's at the very end. <laughs> that is the question. What is leadership? And what is leadership in that team? Because if you have a CEO who, and maybe a sole CEO who's the leader of the company and who chooses to lead the leadership team meeting, you may have one person displaying most of the leadership in that team. The other scenario we've already talked about is where a COO is leading. The leadership team meeting, but the CEO still perhaps has kind of ultimate decision making on bigger topics. And so leadership starts to be shared in the team. And I've also worked in companies where facilitation of the leadership team meetings rotates around the team on a weekly basis or on a monthly basis. And so that leadership in terms of facilitation is really shared. And so again, it's creating the space to have a conversation about leadership, what it means in that company and what that company needs at that stage, because it's not necessarily going to be the same at Series A to Series B to Series C. And that's also the point where you can discuss like leadership styles, a consistency of approach 
for everybody in the company, right? So what is our joint leadership style or how do we want to be perceived? Yeah. So what, when it comes to the team, as a senior leadership team, what is leadership to the rest of the company? How does that team interact with perhaps an extended leadership team? And who leads the extended leadership team? I often find ends up being a more complicated question. Is that someone who's not in the senior leadership team? Is that the COO? Is it the CEO? Is all of the senior leadership team in the extended leadership team? We're starting to get team of teams, level of complexity. How do those teams interact together and work together? Then there's another entire topic that we will not dive into today, which is the extended leadership team. How do you grow into it? Is it just because it's easier to have a team than have difficult conversations? When do you transition to it being an actual purposeful team? But I think we'll just... <laughs> yeah, we maybe park that one. Although I've definitely been in a situation in a company where there were 60 of us in the company and 15 of us went into the the senior leadership team meeting every week because we'd have been like, oh, but they're a leader because they're a manager. They should come into this meeting. And there was a moment we kind of looked around the room and our office was not very... Like the meeting room was not very big. We're like, really? This this is not a team anymore. <laughs> this is not effective. We cannot have a 15-way useful conversation. The big decisions need to be made. Who is actually on the senior leadership team? And how are we going to work with those other people who are leaders in the company, but aren't on the senior leadership team? I think every company goes through that at some stage. Becca, we're rapidly running out of time. Before we get to our final question, If somebody has been listening today and thinking, yeah, I could do with some team coaching help, or I'd like to just learn more about it, where should they go to get in touch with you, learn more about your approach? Find out more about me. You can go to my website, beccasweetman.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Becca Sweetman. And yeah, I'm always happy to have conversations. Doesn't need to be that they're ready to dive into team coaching now. But just having that conversation, answering questions, explaining what it can look like, because it's not as linear as perhaps one-to-one coaching looks. Team coaching can take so many different forms uh, because it's all got to suit the right team in the right moment. Awesome. And final question is, if our listeners could only take one thing away from today's conversation, what's that one thing? I'd say the most important thing when it comes to the performance of the leadership team is creating the space to have a conversation about the team's performance and how it's working together and how effective it is. That's really interesting. It harkens back to our OKR discussion where Jenny mentioned that there have been some leadership teams that she's seen where one of the OKRs has been about developing their team, like the leadership team themselves and have it measurable. And that's how they've carved out the time. I think it's a great way to do it. I've Definitely been in teams and supported companies who identified OKRs that were about team performance in one way, shape, or form to really make sure that they're carving out time. And often it's broader and it's about development across the whole company to ensure that every individual in the company is finding the time for their own development. But also sub teams, product team, sales team are all teams and how are they working together and bigger companies they'll have their own mini leadership team of product as well as the broader function and how that works together lovely thank you becca for joining us on the operations room and if you like what you hear please subscribe or leave us a comment and we will see you next week 